Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Forum of Science and Democracy. Our guest today is uh, Stefan Collini. He is a professor of intellectual history and English literature at the University of Cambridge. In recent years, he has been an influential voice in debates of the character of modern universities and the problems they are facing. Among his many books, I'll mention only two, namely, What Are Universities For? That was published a few years ago, and the brand new follow-up, Speaking of Universities. In these books, you'll find a strong critique of uh, recent developments in the university sector, but certainly no easy nostalgia for the good old days. There is, I think, something refreshing uh, in Professor Colini's treatment of these things, and uh, that quality has something to do with uh, his uh, realism. Asking what is specific about the university business and what is needed in order to do a good job uh, in an institution like this is certainly a much more interesting way of starting a discussion than simply being for some traditional uh, ideals or for or against some uh, latest reforms. And thus, this is one of the reasons I have enjoyed reading his books, and this is also the reason why I very much look forward to his talk today. Please welcome Stefan Kornin. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm assured that if I'm wearing all this, you can hear me wherever you're sitting. Um, two preliminary points. First of all, let me just apologize for the fact that I shall be perpetuating the casual linguistic imperialism of the English language. Uh, I don't regard this as a wholly beneficial development, but I assure you it's very much in your interest that I don't try to deliver this lecture in Norwegian. Um, and secondly, I just want to say that I am not going to be using any PowerPoint or any visual aids. Uh, I think they're often of rather doubtful benefit for a lecture like this that concentrates on concepts and arguments. Uh, and I think that even though one of my students did say that uh, the students like such visual aids because, as she rather unguardedly put it, it gives us something to think about while you're talking. <laughs> so much the greater part of public discussion about universities in Britain in the last few years has focused on methods of funding. As you may know, in England and Wales, but not in Scotland, direct public funding of teaching in universities has been replaced by student fees. There's been much less discussion of the kinds of change that have transformed universities internally over the past two or three decades. And this lack of public attention to this kind of transformation, I think, is not surprising. Uh, this is not a kind of single event happening which catches the headlines, and it takes place by apparently small, almost invisible steps spread over quite a few years. But the truth is that the character of British universities, and perhaps especially the experience of being a member of the academic staff of such universities, has been radically and systematically altered in the last few years, in a very short period of time. And this process, I think, has received much less attention or analytical criticism. 
the entirely legitimate demand, I think it is entirely legitimate, that universities be accountable to society has, in conjunction with some other features of the contemporary political climate, resulted in the growth of a particular kind of audit culture, which is having, I think, some very damaging unintended consequences. I know that those who concern themselves with the future of universities in other European countries have been watching these developments with uh, considerable interest, not least because they, or you perhaps, um, may quite reasonably fear that some of these market-oriented measures may shortly be coming in your own countries if they haven't already. So for that reason, this lecture focuses on the consequences in Britain of the current interaction between a particular conception of accountability and a particular form of managerialism. Universities change as societies change, but never as a simple and direct reflection of those changes. The relationship is always more dialectical and indirect. And one way to characterize the transformation of much of the developed world in the past three decades is to say that we've moved from having market economies towards being market societies, as more and more domains of life have been reshaped on the model of market competition for profit. Now, this is, of course, a very large topic. I haven't got time to dwell on the different elements in the mix, which, of course, have worked out differently in various countries. But it seems to me too simplistic to suggest that this is the straightforward outcome of the imposition of a single ideology, usually called neoliberalism. There have been several other types of social change happening, but they're not all attributable to one particular form of political economy, however powerful. For example, the decline of deference, the erosion of trust towards professions, the empowerment of certain kinds of populist relativism. These all have a complex etiology of their own and have had great impact on the public discussion of universities. And similarly, it's important to emphasize that some of the applications of the principles of so-called new public management in public services is actually far more dirigiste than it is the expression of pure market principles. Still, it's indisputable that in the past two or three decades, governments in Britain and to some extent elsewhere have increasingly treated universities as institutions whose performance can primarily be improved by subjecting them to a particular form of market competition, or at least to some simulacrum thereof, and then to measuring the results in various ways. Now, one feature of these changes that's particularly relevant to my theme this morning, but is, I think, too little noticed, is the way in which the generalization of the consumer model, which is entailed by the metaphor of the market, involves an agnosticism about human ends and a consequent downgrading of reasons as opposed to preferences. So this promises to bypass all the difficult judgments about some human activities being more worthwhile than others and simply allows the mechanism of consumer choice in a market not just to determine outcomes but to confer legitimacy on them. Its strength, of course, is that no individual or group is seen to be dictating to others what they ought to want. Its weakness is that it makes it harder for public discussion to address the question of whether some purposes may be humanly more valuable than others. So instead of reasons, therefore, all we have are opinions 
which are treated and derogated as subjective. Uh, I noticed Andreas Schleicher, the man behind the controversial PIASA Tables of International School Achievement, was quoted recently as saying, without data, you are just another person with an opinion. And the fact that that was allowed to pass without any critical comment at all, I think, shows how much in contemporary public debate we automatically relegate anything that's not quantifiable, not data, to the status of subjective opinion. Hence, surely, the fetishization of metrics and benchmarks. As the American historian Jerry Muller puts it, the quest for numerical metrics of accountability is particularly attractive in cultures marked by low social trust. There's an extensive literature now, as some of you may know, on the unintended consequences, even the self-defeating characteristics of many of these measures. And several of the examples illustrate two celebrated aphorisms on this topic. First, what is often called Campbell's Law, which is named after the American social psychologist Donald T. Campbell, which states, the more any quantitative social indicator is used for social decision-making, the more subject it will be to corruption pressures, and the more apt it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes it is intended to monitor. Now, there are countless recent examples of this truth, notably perhaps the scandal in school systems in the USA and elsewhere of teachers falsifying their students' exam results in order to improve the school's metrics. The other celebrated dictum is the anthropologist Marilyn Strathern's reformulation of a familiar critical point. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. In other words, initially you set out to measure how much people like doing activity X, then you set a certain figure as the number of times people should aim to be doing that activity, a benchmark, or else there will be penalties, and thereafter that indicator becomes worthless. It only tells you that people are now doing what they've more or less been forced to do. The result, says Muller, is goal displacement, where the metric means come to replace the ultimate ends that those means ought to serve. And Muller has assembled a lot of very disquieting examples to illustrate this, I suppose the most chilling of which concerns the introduction in the USA in the early 1990s of surgical report cards in some states as a way of rating individual surgeons' efficiency and hence their salaries. And this created a pressure, of course, predictably, to operate only on categories of patients with high survival rates and to neglect the other possibly needier patients. And as Muller dryly summarises the outcome, more patients died, but the metrics improved. Now, the extension in the course of the 1990s and 2000s of new public management techniques to all forms of provision has led to what has been called the reporting imperative, which is defined as the perceived need to constantly generate information even when nothing significant is going on. And these procedures inevitably engendered numerous externalities in excess of the goals aimed at. And one has been the sheer, <coughs> excuse me, the sheer scale of the machinery and cost involved in devising ways to collect evidence of efficiency. 
And another has been the increased availability of and reliance upon quantifiable data. Any of you who work or study in management studies are familiar, I'm sure, with the maxim, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. But another, less noticed change, I think, has been entailed by the shift of attention from specifying aims to attempting to measure outcomes. And this shift has, in many areas of life, given rise to an enhanced emphasis upon the perceived satisfaction of those who are meant to be the beneficiaries of a given service. Now, this, of course, adds significantly to the burden of data gathering, as Helen Small, who spoke here some time ago, I know has argued with reference to universities. But it also entails finding a way to replace judgments of worthwhileness with the quantitative measurement of end-user satisfaction. So all citizens undergo a kind of compulsory role assignment and emerge from this process as consumers. And as you all know, surveys and polls endlessly record what percentage of a target population are very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, absolutely pissed off, and so on, about any particular service. And that is what accountability now largely means in relation to any form of public provision. But it's particularly problematic when applied to universities, uh, and attempts to give effect to this kind of requirement where matters of intellectual quality are concerned has involved, I think, a significant shift away from the implicit acceptance of the relevant degree of professional autonomy upon which universities had previously relied. So asking users of, say, a given rail service whether they are satisfied with the punctuality or cleanliness of the trains may yield information that can be both quantified and moderately useful. Asking users of a higher education system if they are satisfied with the quality of education they've received is likely to produce either responses which are interesting but not at all quantifiable or which are quantifiable but probably not very interesting. And anyway, it's not clear that the category of users can easily be defined here. Are the parents of students users? Are employers? Are those bodies who compete for young citizens' votes or those concerned about the level of public debate and cultural discussion and so on? All of society is in some way or another potentially an interested party here. But more fundamentally, is user satisfaction a relevant way of assessing how effectively the purposes of education have been achieved. User dissatisfaction may sometimes be an important sign that genuine education is happening. And taking up the most contentious aspect of the question, how should this version of accountability be made to work in the case of those intellectual activities we now classify as research. Universities are pressed to show that society is getting value for money by investing millions in the research activities of its academics. But how to argue for this expenditure in the face of the allegedly quantified benefits of spending those millions instead on building roads or hospitals or aircraft carriers in the case of Britain? I think here we start to enter on territory where there's always likely to be some 
uh, tension between the short, easily intelligible, and often quantifiable case required for public debate in a market democracy, and the more extended and indirect case that may be needed in order to give an adequate characterization of the central purposes of universities. Now I say again, it, it is entirely proper for those societies that invest considerable sums of public money in universities to want to be provided with some reasoned justification for this expenditure. I'm not assuming that academics should be exempt from that wholly legitimate expectation, but it ought to be obvious that the reasoned case must be couched in terms that actually capture what is distinctive and valuable about what universities do. But I think the terms of contemporary public debate, especially in Britain, make it difficult to articulate that justification in ways that those who largely shape attitudes in the media and policy-making worlds assume will be acceptable to most of their audiences and electorates. Whether, in fact, their assumptions are too pessimistic is something I've argued elsewhere. In a public culture that is so sensitive to the prejudices of the right-wing popular press, there's a very great and easily mobilised hostility to anything that can be represented as professional class welfare sponging. No matter that the corporate and financial elites cream off unimaginably greater proportions of what should in some senses be seen as public wealth, any group which can be represented as combining direct receipt of public funds, historic cultural capital, and some form of professional autonomy is going to receive a good kicking in this popular press. And that's true whether they are academics, directors of national theatres, BBC producers, members of parliament, or whatever. This popular interpretation of accountability means, therefore, not just democratic answerability, demonstration of the proper stewardship of public funds, insidiously, it comes to mean, though of course this is always meant to remain implicit, not explicit, it comes to mean that the working conditions within these professions should be made to correspond more closely to those recognisable to the majority of the working population in society at large, regardless of whether those conditions are the ones which are best conducive to high-quality work in these areas. So the issue of the quality of intellectual work, I think, is bound to be a vexed one in a culture of accountability. It necessarily involves the exercise of informed judgment in place of purportedly objective measurement. Our society's solution to this problem can be expressed in a single word, a word that has now become so universal that we're in danger of not even noticing it. In practically every official statement or document issued by practically every university describing its aims, or as it would now be said, its mission, you will encounter that institution's commitment to excellence. Now, I'm not going to dwell on commitment today, although I would just remark the way that business speak depends on harnessing but devitalizing the language of the emotions. No candidate now for a job in any walk of life is merely interested in something. They're always passionately committed 
to the activity in question. And I've noticed that job descriptions now embed the same hyperbole. I recently saw a vacancy advertised that declared to prospective candidates, you will be passionate about stock flow control. And you can't help thinking that an appointments committee should regard that as some kind of peculiar emotional derangement. But as part of this same uh, almost meaningless corporate speak, excellence is now the ubiquitous term for what we in universities are, are of course, passionately committed to. So it's worth pondering the semantic range of excellence for a moment. The thesaurus rightly gives two clusters of near synonyms. The first refers to those terms that indicate that something is good of its kind, and the second to those that suggest it is better than the others. So excellence connotes both fulfilling the telos of something. It is, for example, I've noticed sometimes given as a translation of the ancient Greek term, arete, but also excelling, rising above, being outstanding. So in all ordinal scales of evaluation, we ascend, don't we, through satisfactory good to very good to excellent, the best. So excellence always totters unsteadily between being part of, an, really, an Aristotelian tautology. To attempt to fulfill any purpose is to attempt to exhibit the excellence appropriate to that activity, while also smuggling in the notion that it involves coming out on top in some form of competition. Now, no determinate meaning can be ascribed to the claim that a university is committed to excellence. Every institution presumably thinks that it ideally is trying to do whatever it does as well as it can. Of course it's committed to excellence. What else could it be? Imagine the alternative statement. Only a university committed to mediocrity in both teaching and research can attract the losers of tomorrow. Only universities vigilant about constantly lowering standards can hope to flourish in the global competition to do rather badly, and so on. But although strictly meaningless, the use of excellence and similar bits of pattern does have a function. It signals that the university accepts the sovereignty of the current cant, especially the dominion of audit populism. Its public relations people and the corporate world's public relations people are, in another of the favoured clichés of our time, singing from the same hymn sheet. And it not only signals acceptance of the coercive fiction of competition, we try to excel, to beat the others, to win, but implicitly it also signals acceptance of the conventional forms of the measurement of achievement. And this is the great unspoken about excellence. Since it's entirely devoid of content in itself, its presence can only be demonstrated by some quantitative evidence recognisable by outsiders. To be committed to excellence serves to announce that your institution will act as though there were some genuine value in being ranked in, say, the world's top 100 universities, or ranked in the top 10 in the research excellence framework in Britain and so on. Yes, says the university, we believe in excellence, and so we will, with conviction, submit ourselves to these exercises and strive to do well, to excel, by their criteria. We are team players. 
We are serious about making a contribution to society. We understand the need to be accountable. We accept the need for objective performance indicators. All this, I suggest, hovers around the ubiquitous discourse of excellence, and it numbs us into not noticing how far we are from a modest and accurate account of the purposes of a university. This cluster of issues also illustrates what I would call the paradox of management within universities. The more dirigiste forms of university administration are bound to be endlessly frustrating for the administrators themselves, since they cannot compel or otherwise bring about the production of the thing that matters most, intellectual quality, whether in teaching or scholarship or research. But they're encouraged by society to expend their considerable energies on schemes which they can control, forms of surveillance and assessment which have the appearance of ensuring that the objects of a university are being properly pursued, but which are in reality simply external indicators of their lack of effectiveness in the one necessary thing. Society demands accountability, but from the more mechanical expressions of this demand, all it gets is the external show of accountability. And this highlights a broader distinction, I think, between administration and management within a university. A good administrator helps to put in place the conditions in which academics can teach and think well in ways they judge best. A poor manager exacts compliance from academics in procedures which are proxies for the real business of teaching and thinking well. Don't misunderstand me. Good administration, good financial management, good maintenance of buildings and much else. They're vital to the functioning of universities. But the inescapable, if potentially unpopular, truth is that the academic staff are the ones whose primary activities are constitutive of what is distinctive about these peculiar institutions. Many institutions need good maintenance of buildings, good financial management, and so on. But the activities of academic staff are what are distinctive about universities. And as a consequence of that, even the best run and most lavishly funded university, which has largely fourth-rate academics, will remain a fourth-rate university. Now, this is an uncomfortable truth, and I think it's uncomfortable for academics as well as for everyone else. It's uncomfortable in part because intellectual quality and creativity cannot be programmed, but uncomfortable also because the ultimate standing of even the best-run institution depends on factors that are not under its control. Good intellectual work is not the product of one university or even of one generation alone. It depends upon, among other things, those intangible ideas and standards that clever graduate students absorb almost by osmosis from the publications and conversations of their seniors and peers in disciplines that spread across institutions, across countries, and across generations. So a new up-and-coming university can try to hire a few of what it regards as the best people in a given field, if it has the resources and so on, but it cannot by itself make the field an intellectually exciting one, or make the star recruits continue to do good work, or produce their successors. 
In addition to being part of and dependent on wider intellectual worlds and disciplinary traditions, strong universities are those that, having established over an extended period of time a reputation for high intellectual quality in the main academic disciplines, actively sustain an ethos that supports creativity and autonomy, and thereby continue to attract the best academics and students. In all of this, those, uh, those clever graduate students I mentioned just now intuitively know, I think, what matters. I'd be willing to bet that no intellectually ambitious would-be graduate student ever applied to study at a particular university because he or she had heard that the institution boasted an outstandingly good quality assurance division. That's not what it's about. And this is where the category of managerialism becomes particularly relevant. Of course, as I've said, all enterprises have to be properly run. We talk of managerialism when the procedures, values, and interests of those charged with running an institution take priority over the purposes for which it is supposedly being run. Also, you will have noticed, managerialism requires not long familiarity with the knotty particularity of a single institution or a group of people, but rather a training in the processes that can be applied across all such institutions as managers move from institution to institution. And metrics are the indispensable means of making different activities in different universities uniformly manageable. And I think developments within universities over the past couple of decades have clearly pushed them uh, quite a long way in this direction. In most British universities, uh, Oxford and Cambridge, I have to say, are in this matter, as in many others, partial exceptions. In most British universities, there's been a cumulative reduction in the autonomy and status and influence of academics in governance, in research, and in teaching. And in some respects, we academics have ourselves colluded with these changes in that the overwhelming priority now given to research achievement in career progression means that it's increasingly difficult to find senior academics willing to take a turn in the higher administrative offices of their university and then to return to a career of teaching and research. I have to say, by contrast, I applaud the system that I understand you still have here of electing your deans and pro-rector and so on, and I much admire those who are willing to take their turn occupying these offices and then returning to their teaching roles. Now, in Britain, as you may know, over the past two or three decades, there's been a dramatic uh, downgrading, even in some cases elimination, of forms of academic self-government. Faculty senates have been abolished or bypassed, and we've seen a vast expansion in a cadre of professional managers who come over time to have their own aspirations and their own career paths. In addition, the greatly increased casualization of the teaching force in universities not only saves money, but it also reduces the institutional voice of the established academics and increases the power of the managerial. And so, indirectly, does the current regime of research assessment. It should be obvious, but it may be worth saying, that everything that tends towards greater performance management increases the powers of the managers. Managerialism, of course, operates through various mechanisms, not just by means of direct command. 
So both externally and internally, a pattern of providing long-term funding in ways that are most conducive to good intellectual work has largely been replaced by a system of artificially contrived short-term competition for the necessary resources. Stable and adequate, if limited, funding is derided now as extravagant featherbedding inimical to innovation. Systemic underfunding plus competition and punitive performance management is seen as lean, efficient, and proper accountability. A recent report showed that academic staff in many British universities are now set annual targets for the amount of money they must bring in from external grant applications. No matter that very much research, especially in the humanities, does not require lavish expenditure on equipment or postdocs or whatever, no matter that the rate of success in most of these grant competitions is currently running at about 12%, so the great majority of applications are wasted effort. No matter that constantly inventing and then managing large research projects may be more likely to obstruct than to advance a scholar's capacity to do interesting work. Despite these and many other telling objections, this manic search for quantifiable measures of intellectual quality turns, in accordance with the prevailing economistic prejudices, to money as the most reliable metric and proxy. And this, of course, has already resulted in careers and in some cases even continuing employment itself being determined by the entirely mechanical application of these financial targets. And then there's the fallacy of continuous improvement. If the only publicly acceptable way to attend to questions of quality is by means of annual measurement against a quantitative benchmark, then the imperative to so-called continuous improvement becomes both self-fulfilling and self-contradictory. The logical conclusion of such a process is obviously a situation in which 100% of students get the top marks, 100% of staff get maximum external grants, 100% of departments come top in research ratings, and so on. And when we get to that point, I think it will be time, I noticed as one particularly factuous university advertisement put it recently, to go beyond excellence. Now, uh, I'm going to turn to what are perhaps two of the most familiar examples of the marriage between the demand for accountability and the drive towards some form of supposedly objective measurement. In Britain, the felt need to identify a demonstrable justification for public investment in research was issued in the requirement that university departments provide evidence of the non-academic social and economic impact of their research. Some of you will be familiar with this. It's something I've uh, addressed elsewhere. But I want to return to it here yeah. <coughs> excuse me, because I think it's a particularly telling illustration of the tension between the current interpretation of accountability and the actual character of scholarly and scientific inquiry. The British Higher Education Funding Council's notion of impact may look at first sight intuitively appealing. This, it suggests, will demonstrate where academic research goes beyond the narrow circle of fellow specialists to directly benefit a wider public. But in fact, given the way impact is defined, what the exercise does, 
following a very expensive bureaucratic process, a huge expenditure of uncosted academic labour, is to assemble a great deal of detailed evidence of what are in many cases incidental byproducts or side effects of that research. Remember, impact is defined in such a way as to distinguish it not only from any shaping influence on other scholars or on students, but also as distinct from public engagement, that is, academics explaining to wider audiences the interest and significance of their work. That kind of engagement seems to me clearly desirable and to be encouraged, but nobody presumably would think it could function as a criterion of the quality of the research itself. But impact, as defined, involves something else, something extrinsic to the defining purpose of research itself. Now, I should... Uh, own up to the fact that I speak with some feeling on this topic because much to the amusement of my colleagues I was in charge of our faculty's submission to the Research Excellence Framework in the 2014 exercise. Uh, let me give you an example from it. Uh, for obvious reasons it has to be anonymised. One of my colleagues is a leading scholar of the work of a 19th century poet upon whom he's written some major studies. Partly as a result of a chance personal connection, in recent years he helped to choose the exhibits and write the captions and make other contributions for a display at a small museum devoted to this writer's life and work. Well, I had to turn this into an impact case study. I spent quite a lot of time chivying the poor staff at this museum. Could they supply visitor numbers? Sorry, could they please document those numbers in publicly verifiable form? Did they have evidence of what the visitors to the exhibition made of the experience? Did they ask them to fill in questionnaires? Did they have a comments book? Could they provide extracts in a duly authenticated form? What was the evidence of the benefit the visitors derived from their visit? Uh, indeed, the exercise calls it, what is the evidence of the change in their behaviours? And so on. Now, not only did this exercise consume large amounts of academic time and labour, and remember, it had to be repeated for every impact case study submitted by every department in every university in the UK, but it also, of course, put quite a burden on those institutions and members of the general public who were thought liable to be able to provide the evidence of this kind of impact. When the results of this exercise were finally made public in December 2014, it was entirely predictable that the government and the Higher Education Funding Council would claim that the exercise had been a resounding success. We were told that the great range of the impact of academic research on the wider society had been documented for the first time, and that this would enable a much stronger public case to be made for funding. Is that really true? These instances of effects or spin-offs that are in many cases incidental to the main aims of the prior scholarly or scientific research cannot provide the justification for the social value of that research itself. Moreover, they're presented as a significant element in the judgment of research quality and departments are funded accordingly. But in reality, these kinds of effects, even if desirable in themselves, Many of them are. Even so, they do not testify to the quality of the research. After all, my colleague's scholarship on this poet would still have been 
of the same high quality, whether or not he happened to be involved with this museum, let alone whether I could, after a lot of labour, demonstrate beyond doubt that a 13-year-old visiting that museum had written in the comments book that the exhibition was ace. Impact, as this exercise defines, it's a proxy for the public value of research, and in reality, not a good proxy. It's not actually a measure of that value, but a measure of something else, a measure of something that is secondary, and in many cases, contingent or incidental to the activity of doing research. Something, the required evidence for which is bound to be unevenly and somewhat arbitrarily distributed among a given population of scholars. A department where the research has often, for such purely accidental reasons, generated these byproducts is judged to be superior in terms of the quality of research to one which has not. And that is surely the fundamental conceptual confusion at the heart of this exercise. The attempt to measure quality, when combined with the prevailing interpretation of accountability, ends up measuring something that is not quality. And you can see how, over time, this leads departments, there's evidence that it already has, to focus on securing this kind of impact at the expense of primary scholarly research. After all, these impact cases are all graded, they contribute significantly to the score that you get, that in turn translates into a place in national league tables as well as determining the amount of funding and so on. So the result is that something that may have been initially a byproduct of research comes to be a target, something to be aimed at because there are significant financial and reputational goods at stake here. Many of the activities this exercise records, I repeat, may be admirable in themselves, but they are not a measure of the value of the underlying research and not a measure of its importance to society, and so they cannot provide the supposed justification of the value of that research. Of course, what the exercise and the larger research assessment of which it's a part, what it does do is provide data and this allows for much more extensive and intrusive performance management of academics by administrators and external bodies. The attempt to impose an easily measurable form of productivity can be represented as a minimal requirement of public accountability, though in practice it has far-reaching effects on the kinds of research undertaken or the shape of academic careers or an impact on teaching and so on. And I think research assessment of this kind is a textbook example of the ways in which the current notions of accountability end up reshaping the character of the activities which they are supposedly only intended to monitor. Now when I say that my second example concerns global league table rankings, I can imagine a flicker of boredom or irritation passing over your faces because everybody thinks they know that these are of course flawed but nonetheless they tell us something worth having and anyway they're here to say. Actually I think the current fashion for league tables tells us something quite revealing about the contemporary difficulties contemporary public debate has in coping with the question of intellectual quality. And that's why I want to say something about them. By way of introducing this let me just put three very short questions to you about these global rankings. What 
do they actually provide reliable information about? Secondly, whose interest is served by them? And thirdly, why do they persist even in the face of quite devastating criticism? Now, I'm going to say immediately that I don't find it easy to answer all of these questions, but I think even to ask them reveals something important. So the first point, not seriously denied by anyone familiar with these league tables, is that the attempt to provide quantitative measurements of quality and then to arrange them as an ordinal ranking has to use a series of proxies for what it purports to be measuring. So, for example, in some of the early forms of this ranking, the number and level of higher degrees possessed by the academic faculty of an institution has sometimes been used as a proxy for educational quality. Now, in that case, there may be some correlation between the proxy and what it stands for. It may say something about the recruitment of faculty, perhaps particularly in lower level or teaching only institutions, though it tells us little about the differences among the more highly regarded research universities where possession of a doctorate is now pretty much universal. But faculty salaries, another proxy sometimes suggested for this purpose, do not even exhibit this minimal correlation with the quality of teaching or research. You could even facetiously suggest that there's more of an inverse correlation. Younger and less well-paid faculty may tend to put more into their teaching than older and better paid colleagues. But that only shows that it's a defective proxy. And in any case, national variations in pay, standard of living, the roles of different kinds of professor in different institutions, medical and legal faculty, will complicate this enormously. All this really does, the use of this proxy, is to transpose what is, after all, a pure piece of market ideology, which maintains that higher prices are generally an indication of higher quality. And there's no good reason to accept that claim. A second defect that's more damaging than is usually acknowledged is the use in many of these ranking systems of some form or another of reputation. And here, the undeniable fact is that no one respondent can ever have first-hand knowledge of the work in their own discipline of more than a tiny handful of departments among the many hundreds of universities being ranked. This doesn't mean there could be no comparative judgments of any kind. It's possible that an experienced senior professor of, let's say, early modern Norwegian history may have a reasonable idea about the general level and quality of work in the few institutions which sustain that work in his or her country. But even if there were agreement that that professor was sufficiently informed and sufficiently judicious, there'd still be no reliable way to convert those judgments into a numerical scale, and no basis at all for making reliable rankings about other aspects of those departments' work in other areas of the discipline, let alone work in different fields, in history departments in other countries, and so on. On this scale, no judgment about quality by an individual can be both reliable and comprehensive. And even the somewhat reliable and severely limited local judgments can't usefully be given a numerical expression. What the reliance on this proxy does in the ranking systems is to create a circularity whereby respondents rank institutions in part 
on the basis of impressions acquired from reading accounts of previous rankings. And thirdly, and this really is fatal, I think, all attempts to produce a single ordinal ranking have to make decisions about the relative weighting to be assigned to the different proxies which are measured and accumulated. Do you make student satisfaction, which is already, of course, a clumsy proxy for educational quality, do you make student satisfaction 15% of the overall total or, say, 20%? Careful statistical critiques have shown that small variations in these weightings produce dramatically different results. They catapult into the top 10 institutions which weren't previously in the top 50 and so on. <clears throat> there is no neutral and agreed way to weight the different components. Every decision, there is global league table rankings use different patterns, every decision necessarily favours one type of institution or one national tradition over others. So it's bad enough that the attempt to rank a single factor, such as the quality of teaching or research across all types of institution, is hopelessly flawed, especially since those institutions reflect social conditions and cultural background in different countries that vary enormously. But the attempt to convert the already flawed ranking of widely disparate and incommensurable factors into a single numerical sequence, where there is no agreed way to determine the proportion each factor represents. That, I think, really is, uh, I can use a, a rather underused critical term, simply mad. Moreover, the idea that the qualities supposedly being measured may change significantly on an annual basis, which is required, to enable each year's tables to grab the headlines. This further indicates, I think, the deep disconnect between the measurement system and what it purports to be measuring. And finally, of course, rankings are a further form of zero-sum game. One institution cannot go up without another going down. And this encourages the same irrational gambler's attitude as the lottery. Every player in the lottery has to believe not just that they'll be luckier than their fellow players, but also that their own chief incentive to play is predicated on others' misfortune. Only if enough people lose their bets will there be a huge prize for the winner. Few things, I think, have done more to poison what ought to be the cooperative and collegial relations among universities, either in the same system or internationally. Even when all this is said and demonstrated far more conclusively than I have time for here, and there have been some devastating critiques of it, I've noticed that intelligent, reflective, well-disposed audience might still think, yeah, but he's exaggerating a bit, isn't he? I mean, surely you may say these league tables do, yes, despite all their defects, they do tell us at least something worth having. After all, they consistently show us that, say, Harvard and Stanford and Oxford and Cambridge are among the world's top half-dozen universities, so they're broadly right about that. But we can only think they are broadly right about that because we think that's something we already know. And because, on that circular basis, we think they're right about the ones at the top, we're willing to assume that they are right when they tell us the difference between an institution ranked 39th and one ranked 62nd, when there is actually no rational basis for that judgment. 
for the most part, the rankings give us pseudo-statistical tabulation of incommensurable proxies, inflected by impressionistic judgments, which have been shaped in part by previous rankings. There's much more that could be said, but let me quickly return to my three questions. What do they actually provide reliable information about? They do provide reliable information about those individual indicators that can be meaningfully represented in quantitative form. They provide reliable information, for example, about <clears throat> how much different universities spend on research. And that tells us something, especially about big science, not always quite what commentators assume. But they do not provide reliable information about whether one type of institution in country A is, in some meaningful sense, better than a different institution in country B. Second, whose interest is served by them? Not easy to say, uh, in the first instance, of course, those who make money out of them, including the sponsoring publications, sales of whose special issue are boosted, and who then, of course, have an incentive to tinker with the weighting systems to produce newsworthy shifts in ranking positions each year. Those universities that think they can turn the results to their advantage are very willing to cooperate, and they then confer a further legitimacy, of course, on these rankings by making selective use of them. And everyone enjoys league tables. They're easily assimilable, and they provide some of the same kinds of vicarious interest that the statistical tabulation of all sports results does. But ultimately, surely they serve the interests of those who want their fellow citizens to assume that these institutions can be ranked as accurately as sports teams, and thus to encourage the belief that outsiders can measure their quality in the same way that they can measure the quality of any other public service. And my last question, why is the principle of these obviously flawed rankings so impervious to criticism? I think this touches on some very deep questions about a market democracy's distrust of reasons and judgments, as well as its superstitious belief that numbers somehow escape the perils of bias and subjectivity. The devastating criticisms that have been levelled at these rankings are where, not simply ignored, are regarded merely as a stimulus to tinker with the metrics. Whereas what such criticisms, I think, are really telling us is that the very <clears throat> project of producing a single global league table is fatally flawed. But of course, recognition of that truth might depend on wider acknowledgement of the fact that we cannot have a single ordinal ranking of most of the things that really matter in life. And there's little in contemporary public discourse that makes the acknowledgement of that at all likely. So let me conclude. Um, I've tried to indicate very briefly that there are forces at work in shaping contemporary universities that are more powerful and more pervasive even than the question of funding and the use of fees. And part of what we should have learned, I think, from the experience of the past few decades is that just as relative stability of funding is at least as important as the actual level, so the mechanism of funding can be as important as the source. The so-called arm's length principle was a very clever device because it recognised that the providers of the funding were not competent to create the conditions most favourable to good intellectual 
work. The premise of the currently fashionable form of accountability, which I think is a simultaneously panicky and dirigiste, is that the funding and assessment framework can be used to make universities contribute more directly to the prevailing conception of national needs. It's often said that these arrangements are necessary and appropriate. Now we're approaching a mass system of higher education. And so it's often said that critics merely reveal their nostalgic longing for a day when the shared values of a social elite and the relatively small size of higher education permitted universities much greater autonomy. So let me say again, as I have said before, I do not think I share any such nostalgic view, and I do not, as Anders said very kindly at the beginning, believe in some past golden age of universities. <clears throat> but I am concerned that we should not cheat or shortchange either the new generation of students coming into these expanded universities or the wider public. We should not cheat them by reshaping universities in ways that reduce rather than increase their value to society. Universities have to be partly protected spaces in which the extension and deepening of human understanding has priority over any more immediate practical purpose, no matter how politically or economically desirable such practical purposes may be. That's not an old-fashioned or elitist conception of their role, and it's one that's perfectly compatible, as it has been throughout the history of universities over the past couple of centuries, with the task of providing students with the kind of education that will help them flourish in later employment. I don't pretend that I've got any simple answers to a lot of the problems that I've briefly identified, but I do think that those of us who are academics need to do a better job of helping to make available a vocabulary and a set of arguments that are more adequate to the task of characterising the value of universities and what they do. We, I think, in universities need to remember our wider obligations and also that those obligations extend beyond the present. There's a tendency, very understandable, for all people in universities to think, well, if we could just get on with our research as far as we're allowed to, and we could just do some good teaching where the opportunity presents itself, then these larger matters of governance and funding and assessment, they'll come and go, but we can ignore those, leave those to other people. We should get on with our job. I would say to you that I think that assumption is now false. It's already the case, certainly in Britain, that ill-considered changes to funding, governance and assessment and their sometimes quite unintended effects have fundamentally altered not just conditions in universities, but the very sense of identity and relation to one's work. After all, there's an insidious process by which we become what the categories we use every day tell us we are. I think it's become more difficult for academics in research universities, especially perhaps for those under about 40 or so, not to think that one defining indicator of how good they are at their job is their track record of obtaining external funding. I suspect that there are few teachers in university systems that charge high undergraduate fees who do not come to feel, at least on some days, that another defining indicator of how good they are at their job is the number of students who record that they like their courses and got good marks for them. These things matter not just 
for the harm and misdirection of effort they involve, but also because they exemplify a damaging loss of confidence in the central activities of universities, and a loss of confidence on the part of those who are especially charged with carrying them out. I'm not an optimist about short-term political change, but I do think that as academics we need to do a better job of explaining to wider audiences, audiences beyond universities, but also beyond narrow policy-making circles, to explain what universities are really for and why their true long-term value to society is increasingly jeopardised by the kinds of developments I've been talking about today. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, we, still have, we still have some time for uh, answers, uh, questions and, and discussions. 15 minutes, I think. So if you just give me a sign, I can try to organize a list of speakers. Yes? And the issue of legitimacy is an important one. If you cannot legitimize your institution, you are in serious problems. And how should it be legitimized? By discipline? Excuse me, I don't hear you at the back, so please use the microphone. <laughs> you legitimize yourself by being visible. So the professor who pronounces a, a professorial triviality in the newspaper is a great, great uh, producer of this uh, reputation of the university. The one who is quiet and does his respectable work is invisible, hence no, not contributing. So there is a very unhappy marriage here. The politician has to care about the, about the important topics of the day. The research councils as well. And the university will immediately sell its soul by erecting a center for whatever it is. Climate or sustainability or emancipation and these will own a fraction of the money and they will appropriate the corner of the university. And there is an explosive growth here. So there is an internal reshaping of the university, as you, as you point out, which is driven by the topics of the day. And this is not science. Okay. This is business. <laughs> okay, thank you. So, first of all, on the question of uh, if one is to attempt to make the case for universities, whether one is necessarily drawn into uh, I think what you called uh, publishing some triviality uh, in the newspaper. I think the starting point has to be for us to remember that if we do not attempt to make the case, then the case will be made in less good terms by other people. Uh, I am not willing to see what I see even in the best newspapers in Britain that passes for a description of what universities do as a fair representation of what I know we do every day. We are better placed, I think, to replace that misleading description with a better one. I don't think that's in any sense beneath us. I don't think that's um, falling in with the politicians or uh, other people's uh, discourse necessarily. We cannot afford not to engage with that, I would say. Um, on your second point about the way in which uh, there's a certain, at least I hope I correctly understand your second point, 
uh, a certain fashionability that leads to some themes getting support and centers being set up and money being channeled towards them. Uh, that is undeniably true. Um, here's one of the places where I would say that I think, again, we have a strong interest in maintaining the integrity and standing of disciplines and their institutional expression in departments. Um, I think this is where the continuity of scholarly standards, the transmission from one generation to the next of the uh, best levels of achievement and a proper ability to assess new contributions really lies. Um, the various kinds of centers, which are set up often on a thematic basis, um, of course one buzzword these days is interdisciplinary, that can be wonderful. But if they're interdisciplinary, it's because there are already existing disciplines which underlie them. And I think our role very often must be to make sure that the underlying disciplinary base of a university is in good intellectual order and not think that it should all be dissolved into other kinds of centers. And I still think we could do that. So just to come it appears to me that this old idea of departments that's outdated, but it's not. <laughs> I agree with both those comments. Thank you very much for your stimulating lecture. I asked my students in political theory to come here to listen to you today. I think some of them are here because we thought your lecture would be a good compliment to our book from Wendy Brown on neoliberalism and, uh, and uh, intellectual traditions at the university. And uh, she's talking a lot about the human capital approach. She's very unhappy what's going on in the American world, the economization of everything. And, uh, all these governance instruments like best practice, uh, human capital, all that we've been talking about. But one issue we haven't discussed that we haven't a clear answer to is where does all this come from? Who invents this? And why does it gain such an important influence within the political thinking and political landscape? And why do politicians, often in alliance with academics, gain so much power over the academic profession through these instruments? And that leads to the second question you will find an answer to. Why has not the academic profession been able to protest, change this, given much of political theory and debate about the importance of knowledge in our culture? Okay, thank you very much. Um, well, uh, as you can understand, these are both extremely large questions. I could only do uh, something very brief by way of uh, an answer. Um, one thing I wanted to say quickly in the lecture, maybe I should emphasize more, is that the developments that I'm pointing to there are obviously not confined to universities. Um, there is a much, much larger change in society's view of, in part, what should count as public, desirable public provision, and secondly, in how society assesses whether that is being properly done. And those much, much larger changes uh, obviously have very deep roots in the political economy of advanced societies in the late 20th century. It doesn't take me to say that. That's a very obvious truth. Um, but I do think the point about the implicit relativism of the consumerist model is a very important aspect of this. Um, it is far easier to manipulate 
a particular topic and the public opinion thereon, if you could represent yourself as, as championing the consumer interest, because the consumer interest is whatever the consumer wants. It has no external judgment about the value or validity of that particular activity. That can be derided as subjective or elitist or whatever. And I, I haven't read Wendy Brown's book, though I know about it. Uh, and I think the thing that, by and large, the political economists have a little underestimated is the importance of, of that relativist populism in legitimating some of these strongest market-oriented uh, changes in public provision and removing what were often the socially agreed bases for these provisions, not just in education but in other things as well from uh, previous generations. Your second question of why um, academics and others and universities have not been better, uh, this I take to be your question, have not been better at protesting or resisting about this uh, is a very deep question. Um, one quick thing I would say is that, I don't know how it is in Norway, but in Britain, the official representatives of universities are in a body called Universities UK, representing the vice-chancellors and heads of institution. And they are, among other things, internally very divided. Uh, so-called groups there, which in their response to successive waves of policy, have by and large, perhaps necessarily, perhaps understandably, but have by and large pursued the sectional interest of one group of universities, not the collective interest of higher education in the country as a whole. I very strongly believe that in all our societies, you need to take, first of all, an international perspective, but then secondly, within your own country, a national perspective across the whole system. There are different kinds of institutions, often doing slightly different things, but they all are part of a valuable provision. And once you take the view, much encouraged by league tables, that you have a small elite group of research universities who must be funded much more generously and must always win out against a variety of other universities which may socially be doing much more useful work, I think you've partly lost the case. So one reason, I think it's not the whole story, but one reason is that I think the official representatives have not done a very good job about it. The only other thing I would say, and um, I'm no more expert on this than anyone else in the room, is that our habits of work in universities, to some extent, direct our attention away from public debate. Uh, I mean, we do very strongly train students, especially graduate students, in levels of achievement within the discipline, in publishing in scholarly scientific journals, in the whole question of respect of their peers and peer assessment. The issue of public perception of this does not easily intrude, I think, often on that formation. And maybe one thing we have to do a little more is to say that it is part of uh, one's obligation as becoming an established scholar or scientist to also be able to take part in public debate about these matters and put forward uh, a stronger case. Maybe. I don't say that would answer all the um, hesitations that you quite rightly raised, but that's one thing. Well, last question. Uh, yes, th thank you very much, and maybe my question is somewhat the follow-up of the last one. Um, um, this, 
ranking and so on comes uh, market thinking is behind this. And, and um, I still like my question will, will lead to can we still learn something from businesses from, who are actors in the market? And the reason the way I'm leading into this is uh, the way some businesses go together in clusters when they are in an area. For example, seafood in Norway, they, they look at how they can improve their total market in the world, and they realize quite quickly that if they focus only on competing with each other, then they will not reach as far as if they share experiences and, and have some kind of open innovation. So they have these externalities that they can internalize and thereby making, making things happen more efficiently. And my question is then to university leaders and, and who shall deal with these issues, competing for funding from the government and so forth, how are we thinking too much about competing with each other and not doing the right things with internalizing some of these externalities? Yeah. Okay, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, I would just briefly say that since I've started uh, orating about universities, I've necessarily been on a number of panels that have included leading business representatives. One of the things that I've been impressed by is that those business representatives, especially from the larger international companies, all unanimously say the model that is being proposed for universities as more like businesses is not actually the model followed by businesses in their own best practice. There is a kind of outdated management school theory here that is being applied to universities, whereas they would say, I, running my large multinational corporation, have much more concern for the question of morale of staff, the autonomy of units, and so on, and that the kind of uh, micromanagement that is being recommended here in the name of being more businesslike is not what we do in the best businesses. And that, I think, is, is very revealing, and I think it goes to your point, because some of the things that such um, businesses are doing, as you rightly say, is recognizing where cooperation is actually economically effective. It's in their shared interest. Um, and uh, I, I'm so struck by how the um, idea of cooperation between and among universities, or even between and among scholars, is now under a lot of pressure as being, in some sense, unbusinesslike. Uh, it was put to me a couple of years ago that by sharing my ideas with a younger scholar from another university who had written to me about something, was I jeopardizing our, meaning my own university's, success in some ranking because she would publish something in, you know. That's madness as a way of thinking about scholarly and scientific research, I think. So I agree with you entirely that there are things that universities can learn from very good business practice. The trouble is, I think, that what we're encouraged to learn does not in fact represent best business practice. It is actually some second-hand, rather outdated um, theory that has been generalized out of this to suit a particular political case. It doesn't really represent what good businesses do. Now, time is running out. Uh, before we leave, I have a message from the University Bookstore. Books that have been presented here are for sale by Professor Rodol and Colini uh, will be there to sign a copy if you want one. My next message is from the Law Washington students. You must stay here while the rest of us leave and continue. And my last message 
is from all of us to step up really. Thank you very much. Very interesting.